You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. There are those who believe that life here began out there. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. Uh, hosts from the network, you know that. They drop by. Friends just keep coming in. We talk all things geeky. Uh, Ruby has served up some great drinks tonight. And I'm so excited because my associate producer and good friend Norman Lau is back in the 602 Club. Norm! Hey everyone. Uh, it's It's so great to be back in the chair in the 602 Club. It's been a while. And... I've missed you all, and I've missed Ruby terribly. Not as much as I've missed Matt, but I've missed Ruby terribly. And I think I was close this time, Matt. I think I was close with the with the whole naming convention thing with her kids. Oh, yeah? yeah. Really? Yeah, I leaned in, and I said, Apollo and Starbuck? And she just quickly slapped me across the face, and she says, no, not for well, all as the... as long as it's not boxy. She said, not for I all mean- the trillium... On Corlon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, um, I think this is going to be a really fun show. It's going to be a little bit different than some of the ones that we have done before because um, we're going to have, I feel like, two time periods meet, honestly. It's almost as if um, we both traveled in time from different time periods to talk about a subject and... Uh, we're going to have the fan who's who's been there since the beginning and the person who's just seen it now and actually just finished the the last episode of the original Battlestar Galactica before we recorded tonight. And so we're going to have, I think, just a great conversation mm-hmm. about the original Battlestar Galactica. And as you guys know, or you may not know, I mean, you may have only seen the new BSG, so you're not really familiar with that, which is what happened to me. I was aware that Battlestar Galactica had to happen back there, you know, in the 70s, but I didn't really pay attention to it. I I didn't watch it growing up, and it was a little bit before my time is really what it was. And then, you know, I didn't see it growing up, and then, of course, when they decided to do the new BSG. Well, I was aware that this show had existed and I knew some of the conventions. I knew some of the characters just from being in the geek world, but I'd never actually seen the show. And um, so for a little history of the Lords of Cobalt for you guys, um, in the early 60s, Glenn Larson had this idea for the original Battlestar Galactica and it was actually called Adam's Ark. Um, if you don't know, and instead of kind of drawing from maybe a Judeo-Christian background or anything like that, he drew from Mormon theology and was not able to really find his way to TV until Star Wars came around in 1977, and every network and studio was trying to get into what I was calling the star game. You know, they needed something, you know, uh, it's, it's what brought Star Trek back, um, to the big screen instead of the, the remake that they were doing this phase two on TV. They decided, well, we'll just do a motion picture instead. So this show started back in 78 and ran for a season and was canceled in April 1979. Its final episode was The Hand of God and was telecast on April 29th, 1979, 
which is just a few months before I was born. So <laughs> that's oh, why I missed in. this you show. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, well, you know, I guess, geez, if um, almost 36 is young, then yeah, it's it doesn't feel so young. <laughs> <laughs> so Norm, uh, tell me just kind of um, a little bit for you about your experiences with the original Battlestar Galactica because you grew up with it. Right. Well, it came on when I was around six or seven years old. And for kind of like that that growth period for young fans, that's kind of like the starting point. I mean, I saw Star Wars in the theater only one time. It wasn't a drive through uh, It was my dad and I, and we were actually listening to it on those old uh, hang on your window, drive oh, in. Yeah. yeah, remember those those driving speakers. Yes, and that was it. You know that I didn't know Star Trek per se at the time. I think I was watching maybe if I could remember right. I, could, I was watching the animated series uh, here and there, but this was before any kind of syndicated TV. This is late night, prime time, episodic weekly television. And when Battlestar came on, of course, you know a seven year old doesn't know how to discern between, you know, this awesomeness that was Star Wars on screen versus this awesomeness, which was Battlestar Galactica on the small screen, because they essentially looked the same. Why wouldn't they? They had John Dykstra on it doing the effects. They had Ralph McQuarrie doing the conceptual design. And Glenn Larson has unapologetically said over the course of many interviews that he really did rip this off. He ripped off Star Wars and put it on the big, uh, the small screen but to a seven-year-old, who cares? You know, because you're, you're about the universe. You're about the fantasy. You're about continuing that, that headcanon that it, it just can't be replaced. And that's how I fell in love with it. Uh, I fell in love with just the look, the fun, the daggett. Don't cringe, Matthew. and i was about the same age as boxy so you know boxy played by noah hathaway you know he's around the same age so you know i had him as a peer to to kind of latch onto and and Mm -hmm. kind of join in the story you know he would have been sure boxy and wesley aren't related somehow no boxy like he whines far less than wesley ever did so that's true that's true i guess you're right but then wesley had a traveler and boxy had a daggett so the trade-off i don't think is fair you know? Yeah, yeah, not the same, <laughs> not the same. But um, you know, it's that's just the way it was in the late 1970s when you're around, you know, seven to ten years old. You really didn't have a lot of the kind of quality that you that you see now on TV. I mean, you know, Glenn Larson was famous for Knight Rider, and I'm going to go really deep here for some of you folks. Manimal, Auto Man, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, The Six Million Dollar Man, Quincy, Magnum. I mean, these were. St- stereotypically some of the biggest titles of the 1980s and that you look back on it now you're like geez I wish I could get some of those years back but they were great at the time and that's what I fell in love with at the time and um, I've carried that torch all this time because it was it's my nostalgia it's my mythology that's it's what was my bread and butter much like the Tom Baker Doctor Who series was at the time which is for some Doctor Who fans now almost unwatchable because it was not just 70s science fiction it was bbc 70s science fiction which was a double whammy already so a lot of this stuff just again i i like promoting this old show with fans new and old because it just has that resonance with me kind of like your favorite food that's why i eat bacon all the time 
I think that, you know, I really do think that that is something that is really interesting. That whole idea, you know, you watch something as a kid and there is really, and it's, it's a lot like how you read a book as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I remember this and this will be really funny and people probably be like, what is he talking about? But do you ever remember in, um, you've got mail where she's talking about mm-hmm. Meg Ryan's characters talking about, you know, when you read a book as a child, it has a bigger effect on you that no other reading in your life does. And I think in some ways it is the same with the things that we watch. Mm-hmm. You know, there is something about the impression that it leaves with us. And we'll, and if we really like it, we'll always really like it, even if we get older most of the time and we can see its flaws. Oh, totally, um, yeah. You know, there's there's something about that childlike nature in us that always stays with that film so that when we watch it, it's rekindled. You know, I remember all of my friends. I, I have never really seen all of Goonies. I know everybody's thinking, "Oh no, really?" But my friends all had, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so when I was in high school, early college, it was on TV, and they were watching it. And I'm sitting there watching it, and I'm not watching it with the lenses that they are. And I'm thinking to myself, "This is terrible." But that's because, well, one, I hadn't seen the entire the whole thing. Mm. You know, I'm just kind of plopped down in the middle of it. And two, there is that thing that they all have when they watch a film like that where they are immediately connected to it as the eight-year-old that they were when it came out. To You know, very different from 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old that might sit down and watch it because we have a whole different sensibility. Like you were saying about this BSG when it came out and you got attached to it. You're not, we're not critical like we are when we get older. We're not jaded like we are when we get older. Very true. And and so those films, I think, really, or those shows, they mean something else to us because we watch them at a more innocent time in our lives. And that innocence, I think, really does, it, it transposes itself to when we watch something like that now. Um and it's hard to divorce yourself from that, you know, um, and uh, because I I feel like that there is a little bit of that with, say, Star Wars with me because I saw it when I was eight and I still have that connection with that. But at the same time, I've obviously had to have that challenge because then the prequels came out and whether I liked them or not was how I approached them. So, you know, it, it is really interesting, especially when those th- kind of things are challenged, like star trek fans with you know you had tos tos films and then all of a sudden you had the next generation and everything was being challenged again was it the same for you so i think that's just a really interesting thing that i had to think a lot about when i was watching this show because it is very very different the way that we approach watching things and sometimes that it affects our enjoyment of things too well when you and i were discussing this over a myriad of Facebook messages because I love which we could have turned into an entire show. Oh, no. like we should actually just transcribe those notes because those are hilarious. And I loved almost every every other one was like I, I uh, and then it's kind of like this is terrible. And I'm like, hold on a second, just give it some time. And but when I was kind of like reviewing what I was saying, I'm like, you know what? Even I uh, at this stage in the game can't really 100% say that this is the greatest thing that I've ever seen in my entire life because it's not. You are absolutely right. And I 100% agree with you that 
because of when I saw it and because of the memories that it brings back for me when I watch it again and again, um, every once in a while, I, I at least do at least one rewatch a year because it's only one season long, you know, 20 some odd episodes. It, it does, it transports me back to a simpler time, a younger time when things were not as cluttered and my days weren't as full and when I could just kind of plop down in front of the TV, you know, with my parents and would, you know, turn it on and uh, this is pre-remote control, turn on the TV and let it warm yeah, up. you were the remote control. I was the remote control. Yeah. That's why Son, we... Can you yeah. change the channel? Exactly. That's why we... That's why <laughs> kids, like, you know, they were staring at the TV with their hand in their heads because they were just ready to switch the channel. But yeah, it was on ABC. It was on, like, Sunday or Saturday night and it was a big event because there wasn't a lot going on TV-wise at the time, you know? And when something like this came on, a, you know, somewhere upwards of a $900,000 million budget show that comes on, it looks like a movie. And when Saga of a Star World came out, when they took the theatrical version of Battlestar Galactica and, and divided into a three-part pilot, wow, it was like, I can't believe I'm getting movie-quality visuals, not necessarily story, but visuals on TV. That is incredibly gripping to a young fan. And it still is kind of because, at least I think visually, a lot of the design work holds up. Because if Star Wars still holds up, then I think some of this stuff still holds up because it was designed by the same people. But we're going to get to that in a little bit later. So, yeah, I, you know, it's the rose colored glasses for me on this series are pretty darn rosy because it inspired a lot of what I do today, inspired me to become an artist, it inspired me to um, continue my love of musical soundtracks and musical scores. I love Stu Phillips fanfare with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra as it starts the show. But these are things that, again, I have uh, carried a torch for, as I said before, for all this time. And I know there are fans out there that are listening to this show that I think will feel the same way. Well, and it was interesting, too, because, you know, I, I have seen the new BSG series. And, you know, so I... Every time I would watch an episode, I could see where they had taken bits and pieces and then reordered them, reworked them. You know, Ron Moore and his team had had taken the essence of some of that stuff and just made it more fleshed out. Obviously, because that show has more time because it's on for longer, but they obviously didn't know. I mean, they only made the pilot for theirs, the, and, and it was this the two-hour event movie, the big, huge thing the miniseries so they didn't know if they were going to last either they were just doing this big huge thing and if it caught on that was great if it didn't then they were going to be done too so and but it was interesting watching that in retrospect and just kind of like the the original where they're pulling all this from and uh seeing what the inspiration was and you know there are some things that really were, were interesting and they hold up and then there were some things where i would yeah i would text you and I'd be like oh my god this is awful um you know but that's kind of like you said it's part and parcel of that era of television because there are some of those like say TOS episodes where they're pretty god awful but we we watch them anyway as, as Star Trek fans so it's 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 a lot the same um I think it, it became the consistency of the quality of the show it was different and getting in and 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 
digging into this show finally was a really interesting experience and and then being able to appreciate too the the new show in a different way because I'm seeing what they're pulling from it, it yeah it makes for a great experience so I, even if you you know this isn't going to be your favorite show ever I think if you're a fan you're a sci-fi fan it's it's definitely something that gets pulled from for other things as well there's there's I think things that um Joss Wheaton may have used for Firefly in here um that kind of stuff there's a lot of other shows that have probably used bits and pieces of Battlestar Galacta that have nothing to do with the remake um they're just other sci-fi type shows out there that have have used a little bit of of this kind of storytelling or or the ideas that they saw in here where they're inspired to do something on their own so yeah it was a really interesting experience I will definitely say that to to go back and try and change how I was watching the show which is hard because I'm I it, it I, I can't go back as an eight-year-old and right sit down and watch the show and right. I'm I may have had a different opinion I'm not sure well I think that what you and I were doing behind the scenes with our our Facebook chatter is a really good example of what we love doing here on the 602 Club and on our respective shows on the network and for the network in general. We love continuing the conversation. We love being able to explain things in a certain way where you know, we like explaining the process. What I mean, we're friends and we're friends with all of the other hosts and, and we get along well. And where we come to terms with that is trying to share how much we love about something with somebody who doesn't really quite grasp that in that same way. And having that conversation just grow and evolve organically is the best part about what we do. It's what it's what drives us to do what we do. And every time you said something about Battlestar that you weren't in favor of, I said, well, what if you took a look at it this way? And then sometimes I'm like, you're absolutely right. The Lost Patrol was absolutely <laughs> terrible, terrible episode. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when Starbuck had to practice the rhyming convention with the crack platoon of children to take down a Cylon um, armament or base, I was like, okay, uh, I see that now and I see where it kind of went off the rails. But conversely, you get really good episodes, say like, um, the living legend with the two-parter with Lloyd Bridges as Kane and, and they bring a whole new dynamic to it. You see where there were possibilities. So having that conversation just allows us to explore all of the wonder of that genre, all of the wonder of this series. And I think it's just a great thing to be able to do that. It is. It, it, it's really just kind of, I, I think having that respectful geek conversation is, is just, and, and having the passion for the things that we do is really just why we do the 602 Club. It's why I wanted to start it, is is to be able to just have those conversations about things and, and try to understand things from maybe a point of view that you didn't see before and, and do it with that respectful enjoyment of you're just sitting around talking with your friend about something and you may or may not agree even by the end but that's not what matters you know it's it's about enjoying the conversation and maybe seeing something from a certain point of view as Obi-Wan would say right. so what I thought was interesting here is, you know the story in the setting and the production design all play a really big role in this show and and how it looks and the story the story is different than the new BSG. So if that's all you've seen, 
these Cylons weren't created by man. They were another race altogether that humans had been at conflict with for a very, very long time. Um, and unfortunately, um, they use all this weird time lingo that they never explain to you ever. I can explain so that I to you. I have no idea how long it was, but it was a long time. I can explain that to you in about a yarn or so, or perhaps a centon or a millicenton if you, if you need it to if be you, sped up. If you say any more of those words, <laughs> I will come through and I will punch you in the face, Nora. <laughs> My wife and I... <laughs> she would. She was sitting there watching some of the episodes with me, and every time they would say something, the time wise, she'd just roll her eyes and just like, "Can't you just do it in a in a term that we're familiar with? It's it's not that big a deal. You don't have to change the time to make it feel different." But you in just, the 1970s, that's kind of what they. You, you kind of had to put I, that I guess that weird. I, um, I don't know. Affectation you could have just it, said you know? lunar hour. It would have been much better. Than like, you know, or, you know, some sort of galactic year or right. something like that. So you, people would still have an understanding because every time they said yarn or centon <laughs> or millicenton or any of those things, they never, ever, ever, ever explain any of that kind of stuff. And so you just, for me, as I'd never seen the show before, I was just completely lost. I was mm. like, what does that mean? And sometimes I would be like, okay, I bet they mean an hour there. Right. But then I was, they'd always mix it up. Like I, I, I never felt like it was completely um, exactly right what I was thinking. Okay, maybe it's an hour then. Maybe that's a minute. I don't, I, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Well, I love how they go from like centon to millicenton because yes. now that explains everything in terms of slicing. Exactly. The, in terms of slicing the metrics. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, these, you know, not these Cylons aren't made by man, but man and Cylons have been at war for a very long time. And the very first episode, there is a supposed peace treaty that is supposed to happen and all the battle stars show up and all of these base ships show up and the Cylons do a surprise attack. And they destroy all the colonies and only one Battlestar escapes. And they end up escaping with a bunch of ragtag ships and they're off to find planet Earth. So some of it's the same, but some of it's different because really, even from the beginning, the mythology is different, mm -hmm. you know, from the new BSG. Whereas, because there you're also dealing with um, polytheists and monotheists and how the those uh, mythologies work together here it's really different like the Cylons are a much more one note villain there's no dimension to them right um, they're just chrome stormtroopers right right but really awesome awesome chrome stormtroopers I mean it's not bad know. for the time period I mean literally that's what they are is chrome stormtroopers which I feel so bad for the guys trying to film and not have you know the cameras show up and then they're doing you they want to talk about lens flares oh lens flares terrible yeah this puts jj like abrams would have been in flares. heaven yeah you know i mean yeah that must have been maybe he should have just had cylons on you know um <laughs> the the new star trek films and it would have been easier for him to create those lens flares <laughs> yeah he had a cylon hanging Forget out the, in the ipad <laughs> No, you're right. I mean, it must have been like a, a cinematographer's nightmare because every single time that a Cylon appeared, not only did he have to be 100% mirror-like quality shine, but anywhere there was a torch or some type of lighting effect, it just went 
bonkers off off the camera. The, the camera was like it's almost blinding sometimes. But that was almost kind of like this ominous effect of the Cylons. They're coming just like the stormtroopers did. But at least the stormtroopers had personalities. I mean, you know, they were joking when you know Obi Wan was turning off the tractor beam. These Cylons yeah, are that's true. You know, they're one note. They're driven. They're driven by their imperious leader, who had the greatest voice ever. I know you didn't like it, but Patrick McNee voicing the imperial commander or the uh, imperious leader was fantastic. You know, I just liked the Cylons. By your command. Oh, yeah. And then they had the weird IL series. Lucifer. It was, those guys were just bonkers. I mean, they looked like Cylon clowns. Right. They had the, um, the, the crystal dome so you could see like their brain circuitry. Yes. And they were all it's like formal. like their, uh, their uh, the, oh, what's the name of the, By your uh, command. The, oh, the freighter captain that, or the Starfleet captain that. Gallimime, uh, who has the transparent skull oh, right, right. that Gen Zia yeah. likes to date every once in a while because she thinks he's kind of cute. Yeah, so they were weird, right. really weird. But I think um, a good choice of humanizing the Cylons to the audience was, and in my opinion, this was probably one of the greatest casting choices of all time, and I say this completely biasedly because I love the original Battlestar Galactica, was John Colicos as Baltar. Um, because we all know, as Star Trek fans, we all know John Colicos from um, Star Trek. He played Kor, the Klingon commander. The episode is Errand of Mercy. Sorry, Errand of Mercy, where John Colicos was probably one of the most famous Klingon commanders of all time. But he was superbly villainous as Baltar because he was not the Baltar that a lot of you fans know from New Battlestar Galactica, who was much more strategically conniving. This Baltar was crazy sex maniac, right. basically. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This Baltar was, I'm going to straight up like tie you down to a railroad track and sneer and twist my mustache while the locomotive is coming at you. That's the kind of villain that yes. he was. And that goes back to the way that that they wanted to portray these types of characters back in the 1970s. They wanted archetypes that were very kind of singularly focused and not necessarily multidimensional as most of the characters are now. Well, and, um, you know, I do have to say he is interesting in the sense that, you know, he is betraying the human race for power in the Cylon race, Mm -hmm. which it would have been really interesting if they had ever dove into his motivations for doing so, because it wasn't like... um, you know, humans didn't seem to be somebody really worth betraying at this point unless you were going to get something really good in return. And so they just don't really dive into that, but it could have been even more brilliant of a character. But yeah, he's he's a good bad guy because he does add, for lack of a better term, a human face to the enemy because, you know, the imperious leader for the uh, Cylons is this weird alien mesh-like character that looks like it just has paper mache on its head. He had the best fro, though, from that like overhead lighting. Yeah, mm. yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, that was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. It, it, They never show you what it looks like or anything like that either. Maybe they would have done that in later seasons. The first time I ever saw the Imperious Leader's face when I was a kid is when they launched the action figure line because they had to. Oh, yeah. So there was um, there was Starbuck and Apollo, uh, Cylon, Centurion, Daggett, Muffet, and the Imperious Leader. And uh, I just love, I love Patrick McNee's voice. 
you know, the final annihilation of the life form known as man. I mean, that's just <laughs> so cheesily good. I love it. Just Velveeta just poured all over the screen. What did you, uh, we, you talked a little bit about um, production design, and obviously some of the guys from Star Wars worked on this, and you can see that obviously mm-hmm. in the Viper's design, which is very similar to a X-Wing. Sure. And kind of has the same function, too. Um, but what did you end up thinking about the production design of the show, the ships especially? Because, uh, you know, Star Trek fans, that's a huge thing. Obviously, as Star Wars fans, that's another huge thing, uh, ship design. And just the rest of the show in general, its look and feel uh, and, and what they were kind of able to to pull off with you know, you as you said, it was it was you know a, a, around a million dollars an episode, which then was just insane. I mean, now we just pay the Friends cast, or we did a million dollars an episode, right. and so. You know the neat thing about Battlestar and what science fiction production artists had to deal with at the time is they had to deal with everything in terms of practical effects. So, because you had John Dykstra on there and some of the alumni from ILM, these were no strangers to tearing apart model kits and putting together and reconstituting these new life forms in, as seen as other ships with just this really great glorious harmony. You can't really tell that they're just a bunch of hodgepodge pieces put together uh, and, and camera ready. So the Galactica itself as a silhouette is just absolutely iconic in science fiction. I mean, to the point where they didn't really change it all that much for the new show. You know, it's, it's you know, just had this really long... You know, this wrong rectangular body structure and it has a very kind of serpentine head and it has these two launch bays for the Viper, for the Viper fighter squadrons. So that was, I mean, you know, you're watching Battlestar Galactica when that ship comes on screen. I think the Vipers are probably some of the coolest ships ever made, but they're like, they're like X-Wings. They're fast. They have awesome engines. They have what Star Wars had and what Star Trek didn't have. They have the lived-in look. They have the lived-in effect where things aren't polished, where they don't have the the quote-unquote the Star Trek sheen to it, you know, where everything in the Federation is clean. One of the things that we love about the Star Wars universe is that it's a used-looking universe. Everything is very weather-beaten and well-worn and very lived-in. So it, it adds a lot of the credibility of because these people have fled their home worlds, which were annihilated by the Cylon base stars. So, of course, they're going to be pretty much scrapping together everything they have. And it looked it. It looked like they couldn't afford the sets that they had realistically, let alone fantastically. So you actually had them go on to sets like the Long Beach campus of 1978 in one episode. They went on to different types of actual real-life sets like the way J.J. Abrams did with the brewery in Los Angeles in, as the engineering room in Star Trek 09 and Into Darkness. So I think that's still part and parcel to that feeling that Battlestar truly kind of lifted everything spiritually and physically from Star Wars to create that seamless transition from what they were doing in Lucas's film to what they were doing in Larson's TV show. Yeah, for me, I think that it is good that the Battlestar Galactica itself and the Vipers are pretty iconic looking because I think that the rest of the designs, like the shuttles, are, are the There's Cylon nothing. Raiders were cool too. I completely forgot about the Cylon Raiders. I you know? don't like the Cylon Raiders. No. Um, I don't like their design because there's nothing significant about the design. It just kind of looks like a sand dollar was flowing <laughs> in space. 
And um, and and I think that's something that you know, I've, I was just watching one of the extras on the digital releases of Star Wars, and Doug Chang was talking about his five rules of design that he learned from working with Lucas for so long, and one of them was what you said, silhouette. But the Cylon Raider doesn't have a silhouette. Yeah. Um. You know it. You know you can't put it up as a silhouette and understand really what it is. It's and very that's what I like. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I liked about the new design is they kind of kept some of that that look and yet gave it its own like you could tell okay that's a Cylon Raider and it looks scary. I mean, again, a sand dollar in space coming at you <laughs> doesn't really look scary, you know. I love it. Um, whereas you know it was different because the Vipers they again they have that X wing kind of feel. Yeah. And um, those are are well designed, uh, and they look nice, except for those ridiculous helmets. Oh, I love the and... helmets. <laughs> I love the helmets. Are you kidding me? I love that they have the little lights around yeah. their eyes. Yeah, but there's yeah. no shield nope. down. No, no. It's just this weird helmet that doesn't have, you know, uh, uh, eye shield, um, like any kind of plastic there or anything. No, it's just open with light. It's piped around, but it, I, but it has this really great Egyptian pharaoh kind of quality to it, you know, which as a design. They, yeah, and that's where in the story stuff and like the mythology stuff, I've had to think about this a lot. I think that this is kind of the genius of Star Wars in the sense that everything is new when you're dropped into Star Wars, Especially the original. I mean, droids are dropped in a planet. And I mean, but for some reason, George, even when I was a kid, was able to make everything seem understandable in three seconds. And that's one of his design challenges Mm -hmm. uh, for his designers. We need to know in three seconds what this is because we're not going to explain it. So everybody kind of needs to be able to get it like, you know, in a snap. Um, and I think he does that story-wise, too, even with the ideas of the Force. Obi-Wan Kenobi explains the Force to Luke in less than a minute. Right. You know, um... It surrounds us, it penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. That's all you exactly. really need to know. Sure. Really. Um, so, I think that's one of the things here in Battlestar Galactica, that as a story, and the setting, and then some of the planets and stuff they go to, and the adventures they they get in... It doesn't all congeal well enough because they ha- there's there doesn't really seem to be any rules to this universe other than we'll throw in whatever kind of seems fun for this episode, um, and there's no binding sense of like um, I guess even mythology to it. We're not really understanding what we're seeing because they're not. If you're gonna do that, you kind of need to explain some of it a little bit more. And that was one of the things for me when I was watching it. I've seen the the remake, but its mythology is completely different, mm-hmm. really, yeah. um, because they take their own um, track with it. And here they would just randomly throw things in, and especially into certain episodes, like you get to War of the Gods, and it's just like, I really don't have any clue what's going on at this point because they're, they don't really explain it to you well enough. Um so yeah, there's just those things that they would just kind of throw at you mm-hmm. without enough like explanation. And as we already talked about, even just the time, you know, centons, millicentons, yarns, whatever. It's like there there was a I need some help. There needed there needed definitely to be kind of like um, a marketing and a production line 
officer, if you will, that was um, scrubbing the scripts for consistency for sure. Yeah. Because for for the fans that haven't that haven't seen uh, that are listening to the show and they haven't seen Battlestar, what Matthew's talking about is there's an overarching religious overtone that harkens all the way back to ancient Egyptian mythology, to Greek mythology, to some Mormon philosophy, to some even Judeo-Christian philosophy, all kind of amalgamated and just put into script convention and what we need to use at the time. And it that's what makes it a little tough because sometimes when they start really delving into the Egyptian mythology and it, it does well because a lot of what Galactica looks and feels like is it has that kind of Stargate-esque kind of quality to it in a way. But they didn't really have what the new series had and they didn't really kind of have that overarching understanding of let's choose one philosophy, let's really delve deep into that philosophy and make our scripts kind of hold true to that course of action. But when Battlestar, the original Battlestar 78, when it found its footing and it was here and there because we discussed this before, Matthew, it did certain things right really well. And when it got closer towards the back half of the season, probably like the last three or four episodes, that's where it started to kind of give you that understanding that they're on this journey. They're getting these tidbits of this quest for Earth, but it didn't really quite crystallize, I think, the way that a lot of people would have liked, just from a sheer logical narrative perspective. No, you're you're definitely right. And one of the interesting things that they do do is that after The Living Legend, which is episodes uh, 12 and 13 in the series, they do start to do this thing which you hadn't really seen a lot on TV, which is actually serialize. Um, in fact, after the uh, War of the Gods, you get um, The Man with Nine Lives and Murder on the Rising Star, Greetings from Earth, and, and then all the way to the end to The Hand of God. And each one of those episodes picks up really with Captain Adama talking into his captain's log. Mm-hmm at the beginning of the episode, kind of summarizing what had happened and the mythology that was connecting all this stuff together. That was really cool to see because it's not really something we got a lot, especially in that time on television, um, to really pick up the story and kind of go with it again. Yeah, that was like their version of Meanwhile on Battlestar Galactica. Exactly. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, as, uh, yeah... Paul Cartwright tells you what's happening. Um, So that was really cool. I think that was one of the things that actually is a big plus, especially like you said, for that last half, because it really is to me, it's living legend where I actually thought, okay, this is good because I really didn't like anything until that point. Except for Jane Seymour. But we'll get to that in a second. Yes, we'll get that in a second. Um, God, you're just... That now my train of thoughts completely gone. You got me thinking about Jane Seymour. <laughs> um, but what's no? What was interesting is they actually did some great things, especially that in uh, the series where they, you know, um, people might not have loved these episodes, but I thought the the whole like murder on the rising star and the taking the Celestra and some of those kind of episodes that kind of seem like they might be throwaway episodes were actually dealing with the situation that they're in. Did you, you not know, like the gun on Ice Planet Zero? That's one of my all time favorites. Eh, it's like it the dirty okay. dozen meets Star Wars, you know. Yeah, it was okay. It wasn't. It wasn't my favorite. Mm. Um, 
But I liked those episodes in the in in the back half because I felt like they were kind of they were starting to kind of grasp the story that they had set out to tell. Yep. Like, um, okay, we're this is the last bit of humans, really, because they randomly keep running into humans every five seconds in the beginning of the show um, on these random planets, uh, and the Cylons aren't destroying those people, so it was just really weird. But they just had the a problem the with end, like the colonial fleet. That's all. Yeah. You know? By the time we're getting to the end, though, we're actually kind of... It seemed like the writers were thinking, okay, we're... What would this fleet be like? You know, what are some of the problems that we might have? Um, What could happen to these characters where you could really kind of do more bottle shows? Um, And actually, that was kind of really interesting. And that's, I think, one of the things that... The base idea of all of this is actually some great storytelling potential, and that's where they were able to pick that up, I think, with the new BSG, which I'll go on record of saying I like seasons one and two a lot. In fact, I think season one is probably one of the best seasons of television ever because of the way. I think 33 is one of the best episodes they ever did. The very first episode. Yeah. Um, So... I don't love seasons three and four. Um, so it's not like I'm holding, you know, the new one as being so much better. I think it has a lot of problems as well, even though Mike Schindler would completely disagree with me. Um, but you can listen to him on commentary track stores or commentary track stores. Love Mike. What a guy. Um, we just don't always agree on Battlestar Galactica. So that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah. Um, but I think that that this show did it. It kind of had it would have those kind of pockets of okay, this is good, and then it would kind of go back to like, eh, you know. Um, so it, it was a really interesting thing to kind of watch through this whole series and see. They were by the end of the series because it just ends, and they canceled the show. It was kind of finding its footing. And I feel like if it had gotten a second season, it probably would have been a lot better. Um, it's really the first, I, th- I feel like, the first 11 episodes where it's like I would have quit, you know, personally, like episode three in, episode four, or just stopped watching. Um, and yet it's it, it's in that back half, you know. It, it There's some really interesting, meaty stuff that it almost reminds me of how fans think of Enterprise. Like, oh, if they had just right. kind of done season four first. Right. You know, if, if that had really been what this this show was kind of like the whole time, that it would have caught on more. And I feel like that with, with the original BSG, if, if they had just been able to do um, and kind of know who they wanted to be from the beginning and really write those stories. And I think that's obviously what made the new BSG in its first season. They understood what they were going to do in that first season. And it made it so good. Yeah, this could have been... This, I could have been somebody, Charlie. I could have been a contender. <laughs> well, um, we've talked... I mean, we obviously enjoyed the production up to a point, And we've enjoyed kind of like the, the overall aspect, you know, where where the show kind of was was hitting at the right notes. So that really kind of only leaves one other large factor in in getting into a TV show, and that would be the acting. So I know that we've had 
the back and forths on Facebook about this, but um, I know that you had some opinions <laughs> on the acting, and I was wondering if um, they kind of were at least somewhat tempered over the course of the of the whole season. Yeah, um, I would say you know obviously Lauren Green had been doing a a ton of television. He he's a TV master. Right. He's Paul Cartwright. Um, he's got his part down. I never have a problem with him. Very paternal. Um, you know, he's, he's fantastic. He really is. He's, he's really what holds the whole show together. It's because it's his belief in the show or the fact that he's kind of making you feel like he believes in the show. Mm -hmm. I think that really helps. Um, I think all the acting in the very beginning of the show is a little stilted. I think everybody is, um, I feel like they're trying too hard. I think by the end of the season, and Richard Hatch and, and uh, Dirk Benedict have really figured out those characters. They're very comfortable, and they're they're a lot better. Um, I think uh, Lorette Sprang, who played Cassiopeia, is the same way. Um, I think everybody just got progressively better. It's the beginning again when you're just you're sitting down watching that first few episodes, especially the first three because they're all kind of one big movie. Right. It it feels like seventies television, but in a really bad way. Yeah. Except for Jane Seymour, and she's not a great actress in it, but she's so beautiful. And then she's spoiler alert. Thank you for saying that. She is dead by the fourth episode, and I was you were so, so mad. You were. So, I was so mad. <laughs> I texted Norm. I was like, "What the?" I know. I was waiting for that. Jane to happen. Seymour's was, dead. Right. Can it have been Boxy? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, so mad. When I was a kid um, watching this show, um, you know, my dad and I used to watch Bonanza together, so I was no stranger to Lauren Green, and Lauren Green has one of the all-time greatest voices for tv and radio and film he just has that gravitas and where james um edward james almost his adama was more of this great military figure adama from the original bsg was more of a spiritual leader because even serena jane seymour's character says like you know commander adama she they all of the people on the planet caprica they all knelt basically in a way to him because he was adama you know, he was one of the he was one of the commanders of the battle stars and there were only 12. And I thought that he always just had such great weight, even comedic timing. There were great scenes with yeah, him yep. and um, Terry Carter's Colonel Ty, where they play off each other so well because they're, you can tell that these both are two very experienced actors, probably both theater and and TV actors because they have great timing. Um Richard Hatch as Apollo, for all intents and purposes, was my TV version of Luke Skywalker. I know they're two completely different characters, but it's that looking towards the future earnestness. Like when Luke was on Tatooine and he was looking at the twin sons, he was looking at the future. You're going to have to you're gonna splice in some music there. You know? It's just thinking of that binary sunset. Exactly. That's what... But- <laughs> And I always felt that um, I always felt that that's what Apollo was about. He was kind of like trying to usher the, a greater future for um, the colonists. Dirk Benedict was serviceable as Starbuck, and he became very endearing because they had to get Han Solo onto the show, right? 
Yeah. I mean, he is BSG's Han Solo. Oh, he's womanizing, drinking, gambling. Womanizing. Womanizing, yeah. Cigar smoking, you know, he, and he was the quick draw. He was the, he was their ace pilot. He was their rogue, their renegade, you know, their. I mean, he's no Katie Sackoff, but. You know. (laughs) 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 You almost got me there for a second. I was like, oh God, there's the hook. Um. And then you had you had great kind of like secondary characters. You had Herb Jefferson Jr. as Boomer, who was just really fun to round out the rest of Blue Squadron. You had um, Tony Schwartz as Tiny. Um, you had uh, Ed Begley Jr., a very young version of him. Hey, you, you know? had you had John Delancey as Q in one of the episodes. Oh, that's like right. He's in, yeah, he's in one of the episodes, which I was like, I know that voice. That's Q. It's funny, um, if you want to go back, because remember, this is 1978, a lot of these actors would have been in their 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. and yeah. this is probably where they would have gotten their start. Um, one of my all-time favorite B, even C movie actors, his name's Richard Lynch, he was in The Gun on Ice Planet Zero, and he's he he's just a villainous, villainous person, and you'll see him a lot in 80s TV. So, on shows like Knight Rider, The A-Team, Magnum, Airwolf... And all those great shows from the 80s, you'll see a lot of these actors kind of like sprinkled through because this was their bread and butter. This is how they made their their living and their career. And I think probably the only real superstar aside from Lauren Green that was cast was Lloyd Bridges as Commander Kane of the Pegasus. But then you also brought in Anne Lockhart, who was famous from Lost in Space. So, you know, there was it's like this fraternity and it's kind of like the same way that some of these actors are still continuing their careers like Richard Hatch in Axanar or some of these other actors that are finding their way into some of these other, you know, uh, genre specific films that are continuing this, again, this nice fraternal order of actors in the science fiction genre. I thought it was ridiculous that Apollo gets married to Serena, who's Jane Seymour's character. And then she dies and then just a few episodes later, he's kind of falling for somebody else. And all throughout the series until the very end, it seems like every other episode, there's some other girl they're trying to kind of like hook him up with until uh, obviously at the end, it's it's Sheba. It's it's Anne Lockhart's Sheba that has really kind of captured his heart. And you figure they're going to end up together back in the day. In right. fact, there's that great uh, scene in the last episode where they've all been up to the observation yeah. bubble. Mm-hmm. And everybody's kind of giving them like the side eye, like, what were you guys doing up there? And it's Apollo, Starbuck, Cassiopeia, and Sheba all up there. And they all play it off as if some serious stuff happened up there. And of course, we're not going to tell you about it because it's really dirty. And I was like, oh, God, that's terrible. That's a really small area. (laughs) Right. No, it's funny. It was like that was like the the, the big double date. You know, everyone's kind of like coming together and then. We were talking about the hand of God, ladies and gentlemen, and it was it was kind of like a big thing because if we want to transition into that this you know into this segment now, the hand of God really did kind of set where Battlestar really needed to be. It dropped that one huge story spoiler that we never got a chance to continue, and that was the Galactica spoiler alert. The Galactica received a transmission from the moon landing. And it was on technology that the colonies would be able to identify because it came from the 13th tribe, Earth. 
So now you're starting to establish this thread that, well, it could have been interesting, much like season five of Enterprise could have been amazing. But unfortunately, we just have to kind of pout in our milk here at the 602 Club and say "Mm, the possibilities. But I think it was headed in the right direction for sure. Well, it was sad to me that Maureen Jensen, who played Athena, who obviously plays a huge role in the new Battlestar Galactica, their Athena, um, yeah, gets the shaft she really once does. Sheba comes on. Yeah. She gets the complete shaft once uh, Anne Lockhart comes around. And I was I was sad to see that because I felt like she had an interesting role because she's actually related to Apollo. She's his sister. Right. And so that made for an interesting dynamic. But she's hardly around after Anne Lockhart's character comes. Um, and I'm sure they loved Anne and they knew that she could probably help maybe draw people in who knew Lost in Space. Um, but it is kind of sad because I, I thought her character, it was just a really interesting thing to see. And this is definitely a 70s TV show where everybody needs to have a romance. Oh, you have to be paired up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have to be paired up. And you're right. It's almost, um, if anyone chooses to watch the entire series from this podcast, and we hope you do, Apollo was paired up with Jane Seymour Serena. And I have to say this just because I need to put it on record. Nobody wears a colonial warrior uniform better than Jane Seymour does ever. Period. The end. Nope. nope. So watch it for Fantastic. that. Fantastic. Um, yeah. So you had Apollo and you had Serena and then you had Boxy. That was kind of like our nuclear couple there. Um, then you had Starbuck and Starbuck and Cassiopeia. And it was kind of like the rogue and, the, and the, the daring, you know, adventurous young woman who loved the rogue. And then you had Athena, who was kind of like, it's kind of like, Starbuck was Archie, and <laughs> Athena was like Veronica, and Cassiopeia was Betty, or vice versa. Or it was kind of like the Professor Marianne and Ginger. You know, you just had, yeah, yep. you know, you just had this, what do I do here? What do I do here? And, and, and it added for that wah-wah kind of moment in the episode where Starbuck gets neither, and yep. he ends up... Yep smoking a cigar and going back and playing pyramid with the rest of blue squadron because those guys are obviously dateless in this show <laughs> exactly you know because because they're not cool pilots either you know i mean they can't they're definitely not going to get the chicks it's it's not like there's not more than one i think boomer would have had a shot somewhere along the line because i always liked herb and it's neat seeing a lot of these guys in the conventions now doing the autograph circuit still connecting with the fans because and this was a weird thing when i worked WonderCon, I was watching Battlestar to prep for this show the night before, and then Richard Hatch stopped by the Axonar booth, and I look up at him, and it was like all this time just instantly compressed in my brain. I'm like, what's going on here? I just saw you last night on TV. Yeah, and it was kind of neat. That's cool. So, but I love I love the cast there. They're they're endearing to me because again, I grew up with with them as my heroes at one time. I think that this is something that we did talk about. And I think it's a really interesting conversation is, you know, does it hold up and does it have that staying power, like to, to kind of be in the cultural zeitgeist um, the way something like TOS does or Star Wars does? And maybe what is it that might separate it from something like TOS or Star Wars? Because even TOS was was having trouble with its you know its first 
season into its second season. I mean, it was always on the bubble. And obviously costs a lot less, but and and then the same thing, honestly, with Star Wars, George had no idea if this would work. Um and you know, if it bombs, you know, who knew if if he'd he'd ever get to really make anything again. Um because this was a huge investment. So, I mean, these are two things like that that you just, you didn't know if they would work, but became something huge. Um, and it was because of the way that fans, I think, glommed onto those things. Whether it was the original series or with Star Wars, something about them brought the fans in. And something about Battlestar Galactica obviously didn't because they canceled it because of ratings. Uh, and how much it was costing, and they weren't getting back their investment. So, why do you think maybe that happened for you know TOS or Star Wars, and it didn't happen for something like Battlestar Galactica? What is there a difference for you that you can, when you're looking at it through that lens, that you know about all three of those, since they're really big properties, um, that kind of separates them at all or makes them different well i think and i did think about this a lot because when we bring up star wars and star trek these are the two great titans of american mythology in terms of science fiction americana and there really isn't a lot of room in the middle of these two and that's where a lot of competition is trying to or we're trying to they're trying to eke out their own identity and even Doctor Who, I mean, Doctor Who was around already for about 20 years, 25 years. So you had that in the milieu, if you will. And you had all of these other shows competing at the same time. I mean, you had Space 1999, you had Blake 7, you had um, UFO, uh, you had Logan's Run. On, I mean, you had just, I can name at least 20 different properties that were competing for that very small slice of the pie between Star Wars and Star Trek. And Star Wars was a juggernaut. I mean, Star Trek really did, they did benefit from this wake that Star Trek gave um, a kick in the pants into science fiction. You know, because, you know, Star Trek was around for three years, 1966, 1969. It really didn't do anything since then. They did the animated series for like one season. But it didn't really any go anywhere from there until Star Wars. And then, bang, science fiction had to be the hottest thing on the planet. I mean, we even discussed this with James Bond. Moonraker was done because Star Wars was made. Moonraker really wouldn't have been nearly as successful if it wasn't writing the coattails of Star Wars. So, Battlestar Galactica, it tried, and it tried very earnestly, but I still think that the television audience of the time was more, and I can actually look at the Nielsen ratings and probably prove this right, they were more down with watching and supporting shows like The Love Boat and Fantasy Island, which were the two biggest shows at the time. The that, Love Boat! Yeah. Are we sure that Battlestar Galactica wasn't The Love Boat? Because, I mean, Starbuck and Apollo both had, seemed like a different love every week. There were. There were. It was like, it was like the competition between like Gopher and Doc. You know, on the love boat, you know, <laughs> and then stewing as Adama, you know, <laughs> so that would make a great show comparing like the love boat to all these other ships and seeing which one like ferrets out. This is like our starship smackdown, but with a love boat. So 
huge digression folks <laughs> but um no I, I think that's i mean when i was watching tv when i was a kid you know um every time that uh, somebody got bored with say like watching Battlestar Galactica they they flipped it over to like the Jeffersons or all in the family or something that they were that they were like you know big fans of so science fiction had a lot to struggle against when it came to winning over television audiences and they threw everything at the wall i mean with all of the different shows that i that i you know listed earlier in in this episode that Glenn Larson produced i mean they he tried everything and some of it stuck and some of it didn't but i think the reason why Battlestar has lasted at least in the memory for so long with a certain generation of fans is because there are these 40, 50, 60 somethings that are getting a huge second wind of seeing these things come back with Netflix and Hulu and Blu-ray and the convention circuit because the convention circuit, it does help a lot of these former actors that were really big during that genre to reconnect with their fans. And I think that's a fantastic thing. When we were talking about this and I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, I, I think the thing that nobody necessarily knows how a show is going to be taken and if it's going to take off. And I don't think anybody can really predict that. Um, you know, I remember watching TV and seeing the ads for the show revenge and thinking to myself and even maybe saying out loud, that show's not going to last. But that show's still on the air, you know, and then there's other shows that you think and you love, but then they don't last more than a season. And um, it's hard to predict sometimes how people are going to respond to something, um, you know, and why does something have staying power and, and something else maybe doesn't kind of have that same thing that will continue going on for, for generations. You know, I think what it came down for me is, especially with Star Wars and with the original series of Star Trek, it was their philosophies, I think, about existence, life. Um, for Star Trek, it was about the future and the future of the human race. And at that time in the 60s, and then, of course, when people started, you know, picking it up in syndication uh, in their dorm rooms and in college in the 70s, you know, life was not looking pretty for the human race, you know, and sometimes even now it doesn't. And I think that's why we responded the way we do in the, in the way that even now somebody can go back and watch the original series of Star Trek and they take away all of the 60s trappings of the show and they still see something that they respond to. It's it's bigger than the the show itself. Um, I think the same thing kind of with the Star Wars, with the spiritual side of life. Again, in the 70s, that was languishing for people. And the George Lucas tapped into this need that we all have for there really to kind of be something bigger, something more. And I think both of those shows and properties found a way to get at the heart of something that's in all of us as humans. And that's why we still connect with something like TOS. As silly and crazy as it is, it has those moments of just amazing clarity that continue on throughout, you know, the, even the ridiculous of something like Spock's brain or, you know, Turnabout Intruder. You know, we can get through those because there's still a driving force behind it. Same thing with some of the, the, the with Star Wars. Um, 
And so I think when I was thinking about this, does Battlestar Galactica hold up and maybe why doesn't it have the staying power? I think it's because it just it, it couldn't find a way to completely tap into something more primal. And that's really what fantasy and sci-fi do for the most part is tap into something kind of primal in us and talk about something really big, you know. Um, and obviously science fiction has done that since, you know, the early Victorian era when we're talking about like Jules Verne and that kind of stuff. It's it's tapping into something big. Um, does that mean it doesn't hold up? Well, I think we can look at Battlestar Galactica and we kind of put it through that framework that maybe they use on um, Mission Log. And I don't think it holds up production-wise or any of those things. Does that mean people shouldn't watch it? No, I think it's a really interesting show to watch because it has a great view of where sci-fi has come from. And I think that there are some great ideas in there that obviously would lead to the reboot and even just ideas that you will see in lots of other science fiction i think there's some ideas in here um kind of the weird western episodes that they do i feel like joss wheaton kind of pulled some of those things and kind of used them a little bit and, and to his own advantage in his firefly that's one of my you know? favorite episodes of the series so yeah, yeah. so you know I, I it's it's an amazingly interesting show to watch from a historical perspective um and seeing those kind of things and some of it is good there's some interesting great episodes i would say my favorite episodes of the original battlestar galactica are, are the living legend i think they're really really good and what was really interesting and i think there's this great episode with apollo and it's called experiment and terra and you can see the time period that it's coming from and it's um the whole philosophy of um military and power and might in that way is so much that time period um and even what we see today uh that kind of started i think very much with teddy roosevelt you walk softly and you carry a big stick and that's very much uh, what it's almost exactly what Apollo tells these people on earth is that it's by it's strength from strength that you bargain and not the other way around. Was that the episode where he inhabited somebody else's like, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But again, that's one of those episodes where it was transcending something and it was really talking about something much bigger than just the show. It was really kind of speaking to the viewer Mm-hmm. You know, um, without hitting you over the head, I didn't think. Um, and so, yeah, those are there's some really great stuff here. And, and if you haven't seen it, it's definitely fun. You can hit it up on Netflix. Um, there's actually a couple episodes here and there in the Netflix run that are in HD. The rest of them aren't. But there are a couple that were in HD and it looked really nice. Okay. So um, the Blu-ray set's about to come out. I can't which wait. Norman, I, can't I know you can't, can't wait. wait. <laughs> but not only because of that, because it hasn't been presented in widescreen since the original broadcast. Um, so, I mean, when I say original broadcast, I mean the original movie, not the original TV right. show. Yep. So now, because they shot it the way they did on 35 millimeter, the same way that they shot the original series, they can go in there and reformat things to its original aspect ratio, which is going to be awesome. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I'd I'd actually love to watch at least a couple episodes here and there just to see 
what it looks like um, because I I think it would be pretty cool and fantastic. And who it makes me wonder if they're going to do anything with the effects at all. There's this really cool um, video on YouTube where a fan went and they, did, they basically redid what they redid with Star Wars, just the way that the Vipers oh, okay. kind of maneuvered. They said that if if the dollars could be invested by Universal to do something like this, then that would be a huge uptick in terms of the storytelling effects wise. But it was it really wasn't about that, though. You know, it's kind of like, right, no. you know, it's effects don't save stories. You know, they only enhance the storytelling. It's kind of yep. like as much as I loved what they did with Star Wars uh, and, and the way they redid the Death Star attack scene in, in the end of New Hope, it doesn't change the fact that you're feeling this tension that Luke has to do this mission. You know, it just looks nicer, but it doesn't change the pacing. It doesn't change the emotional connection to it. So, you know, I would love to see it with modern effects, but that probably won't happen. But it doesn't change the way I feel about the show, or, or nor would it. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's okay. You know, again, this is this is a really interesting experiment of watching, especially haven't seen it and kind of going back and, and watching something and, and just kind of seeing how far we've come. I, I think it's a it's a great thing to be able to do um, and to just f- for me, you know, I didn't love it and. I'm not a huge fan of the original, but there are some episodes in there that I could actually go back. I would just pick them out and watch those again because I really enjoyed them. So um, I think that's a really great thing that even something um, with this age and everything, that there's still some of it that does hold up enough where I could actually go back and, and, and enjoy watching it again. And it would be worth my time to do. And that's a that's a good thing to have happen um, in a show that, you know, it only had you know so many episodes you know you, you only get 24 episodes and, and then you're done um and then of course um apparently uh the, you have told me but bsg 1980 is just terrible <laughs> well let's preface that um christopher jones our our, our intrepid um showrunner uh for trek fm our imperious leader our imperious leader he's like he i know he likes 1980 so Perhaps we might be able to extend a yeah, supplementary show. Yeah, we have show to do for... it sometime with him. We'll have to get him on when we can. So that would be awesome. Yeah. Norm, it's been so fun getting to just sit and have you back in the 602 Club and, and talk original BSG with you today. But of course, it is not the only thing that we have been talking about this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things that you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. It's not an overstatement, and you had said in your introduction that without without him and his hand guiding all of this, then, then it's unlikely that two would have been what it was, and if it had not been successful, then it, it, you know, it probably would have meant the end of Star Trek at that point. Earl Grey. Like, I'm expecting Ricardo Martavon to, like, walk around the corner and be like, Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft. The shuttlecraft. The orb. Curzon is involved with the Kittimer yep. courts. Spock is at Kittimer when those are being talked about. So you would think they would have run into each other They probably least. hung out in the bar together. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out! The Ready Room. The movie series would not have relaunched and and become what it was if not for the amazing bounce of 
the Rathacon. The Rathacon was to Star Trek the same thing that uh, the Best of Both Worlds was to Next Generation. Commentary, Trek Stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. Well, I've always liked the... Uh, I like that episode for... I mean, it's one of the most derided of the of the original series episodes, but yet I always, it has a place in my heart for some reason. I've always enjoyed watching mm-hmm. it over. So um, I wanted to do something with those guys, the Scalbians. The 602 Club. Like, I, I could kind of dismiss droids in distress and fight or flight and everything like that and i was just kind of watching the background but all of a sudden i started catching myself like stopping working and, <laughs> and just focusing on watching and uh, and so it just got better and better and better and i think i was hooked by episode four breaking rings that's when i was like okay i like this show this is good warp five in the history of axanar Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows, find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. Guys, you know that you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And with the podcast and, and with what we do, you know, this is a huge passion for us. It's it's one of the reasons that I do the 602 Club because I get to learn new things and I get to talk about my favorite geek things um, and share them with you guys and hopefully do that in a way that's positive and upbeat and fun and you guys can help us do that as well. Um, if you're an Apple user, you can hit the subscribe button. That helps other listeners be able to find us as, as well as star ratings and reviews or sharing the show on on Twitter or sharing the show on Facebook with your friends. You guys can help spread the passion of what we do here on Trek FM in a way that we never can. Um, and we hope you will because we hope you love us enough to just want to be able to share us with your friends, your other geek friends. Bring them into the club. We love that. You know if you're not an Apple user, you can also Get our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download that MP3 file from the website, or you can also grab the RSS link as well. If you guys have a passion for Star Trek podcasts and a podcast like the 602 Club and you want that to keep coming to you each week and being able to share that with others, one of the best ways that you can do that is to be able to help us afford to keep these shows coming to you. Um we are a listener-supported network. It does cost us a lot to have the the housing space for all the files and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I do the Literary Trek show, so just purchasing books and comics and that kind of stuff so that we can talk about them. All of these expenses come to us, and we pay them out because we love doing this for you. We have a huge passion for it. And if you want to help support us to keep that content coming to you, guys, you can check that out at patreon.com slash trekfm. You'll find all the goals that we have, milestone contribution levels, all that kind of stuff there. We really do appreciate your support, and we hope that you'll want to join the team and help spread this Star Trek podcast passion. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. I do want to say a special thanks to my associate producers, obviously Norm, who's here, 
love the fact that we've been doing this from the very beginning together. Um, you know, you helped um, really just kind of bring this to the forefront. You you believed in this show from the very beginning, and it's been awesome. And Ken Tripp, you too. Your support and being an associate producer means the world to me, guys. Guys, if you would love to contact us on the show, you can do that. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us audibly, we'd love to have that too. You can leave a voicemail, look in the sidebar, the show page, or go to speakpipe.com. You can interact with us on Twitter at trek.fm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, which I would just say, Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, run by Susan Abbott, is also a great way to be able to share our content with others on your Facebook page for your friends so you can help us out that way. If you love the show that you listen to, whether you're a Tour of the Journey fan or Warp 5, The Orb, Literary Treks, 602 Club, any of our shows, you can just share them with your friends from the Facebook page there at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And if you like to just interact with the hosts and talk about all things geeky, one of the best places to do that is on the Babel Conference. We talk about just about everything there because of the 602 Club, plus all the things we talk about in each one of our Star Trek shows. Just type the Babel Conference in the search field on Facebook or go to the website at trek.fm and hit discussion on the menu bar. Well, Norm, uh, before we go, let everybody know where they can find you online if they'd like to interact with you and talk about your passion for original PSG, which, as I know, you can do for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I wanted to address uh, the kind words that you said earlier. Um, it is, it's, it's a huge treat for me to be able to support the network through Patreon. I've been doing it since the beginning. It's how I was able to get involved with the uh, station and to meet you and to meet Chris and, and to meet all of the hosts and, and become part of the shows and become part of the fabric of this network. And I don't, I mean, aside from working and eating and spending time with my significant other, Carol, I wouldn't dream of like being able to spend more incredible, awesome conversation time than doing what we do right now on the network. And this is what we do. We are fans. We love this stuff. We love talking about it. We love talking to you about it. So I'm just glad to be able to have the opportunity to do it. And like Matthew said, join us on the Babel Conference. Join us and um, in the discussion. That's what we love doing. We love continuing the discussion. Drop us a line or support us in any way you can because... We like doing it for you. This is this is who we like talking to. If we weren't behind the mic, we'd be right in front of you having a drink. So this is this is fun for us. This is what we love doing. And I do it uh, for the network on Warp 5, the dedicated Enterprise show. So you can find me on the show there. You can find me on the Babel Conference. Um, I pretty much post there almost every day. And uh, I like sharing my ideas and my thoughts with you. You can also find me on Twitter, Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And uh, many of you know that I'm a huge supporter of the Axonar Project and Alec Peters' work on that. So you can find me on the Axonar fan group page on Facebook. And as I said before, I, I love being able to support the show through, through Patreon. And I am the associate producer here for Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axonar, the official Axonar podcast. Now, I, I haven't been on the show in a while, and uh, it's a real treat for me to be able to come back on because my personal life is very busy my work schedule is very busy and i know ruby's a little upset with me so <laughs> i have brought something that might bring a smile to her face and that is my personal pyramid card deck to see if we can play a couple rounds 
and I guarantee you that she can let me win. <laughs> <laughs> well, best of luck. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, guys, you know that you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'd love to have interaction with you there, talking about anything we talk about here on the 602 Club or what we talk about on The Orb, what I do with Christopher Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. Of course, Literary Treks, where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek. Honestly, guys, um, if you like Star Trek and you enjoy the 24th century, well, that doesn't exist anymore on screen. We don't get any more of that. But you do get it in the books. So pick up a Star Trek book or just ask me or Dan where to start and we'll help you out on your journey for Star Trek literature. And then, of course, I also do my own personal blog, which is 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? <laughs>